four, and uh, just a little overview of it. The the um, passages, especially thirty one to thirty two. I'm sorry, twenty eight to thirty two have six statements. The word woe is not a word that we use very often in modern English, but we, we still have a sense of what it is, I suppose. Um, it's a kind of cry, outcry. The word in Hebrew can be used either for joy or for um, sorrow. Uh, here it's used in, in the sorrow sense. So woe is right. It's, these are remarkable pronouncements of judgment that are coming specifically on Samaria, Judea, or Judah, and um, Assyria. Uh, so all the way through chapter uh, 35, you're dealing with these judgments. In, in, the, uh, in the setting, we're right in the 8th century B.C., just where Isaiah's ministry is. Huh. Is it closer? Well, it's falling. Um, yeah. We live in a fallen world, yes. A pun is not mature until it's grown on you. So. Um, what's, what's going on in this period... <laughs> yeah, mic drop. <laughs> What's going on in this period? Yeah, the boom needs to be shorter, I think. Have more weight on the other side. There we go. Okay, maybe that will do it. That seems to have done it. All right. Um, in, in this 8th century, things were getting really bad. You have Hezekiah on the throne in Judah. Um, that's a good thing, but Hezekiah himself appears to be uh, at least initially somewhat vacillating in his commitments. Um, the passage that's before us has, uh, the, the, this 28 to 33, has uh, occasions where it, uh, Judah has sent emissaries to Egypt to get help instead of calling on the Lord. Now, I don't know quite how to account for that. I don't, I don't know what that means precisely in detail. One possibility is that Hezekiah sent these ambassadors to Egypt to make alliances. Another possibility is that some faction in the government sent off these emissaries trying to make alliances with Egypt uh, without Hezekiah's knowledge. But the text doesn't tell us and so all it does is put, put the, the royal administration in a bad light. Does this make sense to you? So in a sense, although Hezekiah turns out very, very, very well in 36 and 37, um, there may be some holes in his life. Uh, isn't that a good thing for us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I teach Genesis on a regular basis, and I'm so thankful for Jacob. I, I don't like Jacob. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want him as a neighbor, but I'm so thankful for him, because if God can commend his faith, 
I got hope. <laughs> so, so the, so here is Hezekiah, who, who, whose reputation, in a massive way, improves when we get to thirty-six and thirty-seven, and in First Kings, Second Kings rather, and in uh, Chronicles, Second Chronicles. His reputation is, is magnificent. He's, he's one of the model kings of the southern kingdom. But it may not have been that way all of his life. So what we have, as, as um, Eugene Merrill says, tyranny and ineptness abounded in government, and did, as did irresponsible fiscal policy, unwise international relationships and alignments, class struggles, <coughs> crime and violence, and a host of other ills that sickened the nation and the social life of the Twin Kingdoms. Uh, that's what I was hoping you'd say. <laughs> uh, when I read that in, in uh, Dr. Merrill's work, I thought, oh my goodness, it, it's the newspaper. Uh, but uh, this is Judah and Samaria. The, the two together are going to, have, are going to be the objects of, of rebuke and charge and, and warning <coughs> in the passages that are ahead. Here is the general era. I know that's just as clear as mud. Um, but you have... Oy vey. Can you go back uh, Down here, you have Hezekiah. And um, you're moving toward the end of the southern kingdom. Uh, Hezekiah's dates are not in my mind. But uh, his reign straddles the fall of the northern kingdom okay so uh, he uh, the, the northern kingdom falls in 722 BC this this passage is before that period and so we're looking at the, the final, almost the final words of God through Isaiah to the northern kingdom um, the structure of the passage is is fairly clear as a matter of fact this isn't always the case but here it's very clear at the beginning of each major section is this word hoy or what we translate some of our translations read woe so uh, six woes and then 35 um, I don't know it should be 34 and 35 final judgment on Assyria and blessings for delivered Zion um, in 28 uh, to 33 these basic themes are there um, identifying Yahweh as the cause of the threat they think Assyria is the cause <laughs> Assyria is not the cause the Lord is the cause they don't have anything to fear from Assyria except as the Lord uses Assyria as he said he would back in Isaiah 8 they are, they are the axe in my hand and they do all that I command them. Are you with me here? Uh, Assyria was an incredibly powerful nation until um, 609 B.C. And suddenly, they had no power at all. And they, they withered away and, and blew away and don't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, they were replaced by the Babylonians, very powerful Babylonian nation that listed from, lasted from 609 B.C. to 539 B.C. Uh, 
and as we pointed out a few weeks ago, that's 70 years. Isn't that interesting? Babylon reached a kind of peak in its history just at the time when Israel was, Judah was supposed to spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon. What a stunning, remarkable coincidence that is. Amen? Uh, Israel has nothing to fear from Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or uh, the Hittites are off the scene now. The Syrians, they have nothing to fear from these people. Their only concern must be how they relate to God. And they have rejected that in favor of military alignments, uh, political uh, uh, treaties. So it identifies Yahweh as the threat, presents Yahweh's plans for emergence of a royal savior in Jerusalem. The last thing the leaders of Jerusalem want is a royal a royal deliverer who is sent by Yahweh. They want it their way because they've got control of things. They like the way they control things. They get rich. You remember uh, Harry Truman's word about getting rich in office? What did he say? Anyone who gets rich in government office is a crook. I don't think he said it quite that way, but Harry Truman was close. He, he could have said that pretty close. Uh, um, so, yeah, so the, the issue is that they've got their, their hands in every pie. They have controlled the courts, and so they can get everything they want done and everything that will enrich them and make them more powerful. They think they've got control. Reading the newspaper. Uh, the, uh, it, 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 one of the themes in this whole passage is the downfall of the Assyrian Empire. You're so afraid of them. Now, mind you, put yourself in the period. This is 730 B.C., roughly. Yes? Assyria is not going to go away until 609. And if you're saying, don't worry, don't worry, 120 years, Assyria will be no problem. <laughs> that, that helps me a lot. <laughs> uh, but Assyria wouldn't be a problem if Israel was being faithful to the covenant. Uh, and fourth, uh, the certainty of Yahweh's defense. The Lord is going to deal with Judah. He is going to deal with Samaria. He will do it in his way. He will do it in his time. His time is never my time. That is frustrating. I could, I could advise him on his agenda pretty well. I got a lot of advice to give him on his agenda, but he doesn't seem to listen much. I still always, I, in, in recent months, I have begun to think of myself as a little child coming to my father and telling him how things ought to be, and he pats me on the head and says, Jimmy, you're a nice boy. Go play. <laughs> I'll hear you, but go play. Uh, so, so some basic themes of the whole uh, passage. Uh, the structure is marked off by this word woe at the beginning of each chapter, so or, or at each section. In chapter 28, woe to Samaria and also Judah for not learning the lesson. In 29, 1 to 14, woe to David's city, Jerusalem. In 29, 15 to 24, woe to those who rely on foreign alliances instead of the Lord. 
we'll have to talk about what's the deal about foreign, alliance, foreign alliances. Why is that a problem? Should we use the same uh, policy for the United States? And the answer is no. It's, it's an irrelevancy for us. We have no covenant. As a nation, we have no covenant relationship with God. Israel does, and so to seek foreign alliances is to commit high treason. Wouldn't Solomon the first one to do it? Um, yeah. By marrying? Well, David did some, um, but, uh, but Solomon was big on it. Uh, I think kind of a different way, though, Solomon wasn't looking for supporters. He was, he was giving support to other nations. He was so powerful. He didn't need supporters. Um, then chapter 30, woe to the obstinate nation. They are confident in man, but they're not confident in God. Um, and then chapter 32, 31 and 32, woe to those who rely on Egypt instead of the Lord, deliverance through, the God, through God's g- glorious, gracious intervention. And so what's interesting, finally chapter 33, I'm sorry, woe to Assyria, but blessing for the Lord's people. What's interesting in this is there's an amazing, an amazing interchange between warning and hope. And I will, I will show you that a little bit here. Uh, here is the uh, NASV text of the uh, book of Isaiah. And all I want to do, I'm not going to do anything but just scroll through it, if I can get it started here. Um, This highlighting with the purple, can you see the crown behind the words? This is Messianic prophecy. So I'm coming on some more Messianic prophecy. There's judgment. Messianic prophecy. Judgment, Messianic prophecy. When I get to chapter um, 23, judgment, boy. Boy, am I going backwards? What's going on here? There it is, 29. Uh, there you have woe to Ariel. That, that's a fascinating term, and we'll talk about that in t- days to come. But this blue is messages of hope, judgment, hope, judgment. It does exact. The worst thing about a computer is it does what you tell it to do. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah. Um, So judgment, hope, judgment, hope, and back and forth between judgment and hope. Look at this. Then judgment again, woe. But, but chapter 8, verse 18, turns to hope. Look, I, this is not what I expected in this passage. Chapter 27, judgment, hope. Judgment, more judgment, 31, hope, judgment, hope, judgment, hope. 
Uh, am I making an impact on you here? There's a whole lot more. Not what you do with your children. Um, I'm, I'm doing this because I love you. Didn't communicate well to me. Amen? Well, wish you loved me less. <laughs> now I'm glad she loved me as much as she did. I just wish she'd loved me more. <laughs> but... Um, just over and over, we go from judgment to hope to judgment to hope to judgment to hope. It's as if God can hardly say in this passage, God can hardly say anything about judgment without giving some hope as a background for it. Are you with me here? God is a far more gracious, far more merciful person than I ever dreamed he was. And, I'm, and it's the Old Testament that's teaching me this. It's just stunning to watch this. Um, the first woe, chapter 28, and we have a short time to deal with it. Um, in, in, uh, in the first message, woe to Samaria and to Judah also for not learning the lesson. Verses 1 to 4, they are, fo- they are foolishly confident leaders. Stunning. I, I can't even imagine people reasoning the way they're reasoning. And, and Isaiah is going to really press this upon them. So, um, uh, verses 1 to 4, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the uh, fading flower uh, of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, of, uh, of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction. Can you imagine hiring a foreign nation to protect you against the tornadoes? It's it's folly. And this is what God is saying. Not so much that there's going to be a tornado, but the, the storm is a destructive storm. The Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. Ephraim, of course, is a reference to the northern kingdom. Yes? This is the son. Ephraim is the son of Joseph that Jacob blessed instead of the older brother Manasseh. Do you recall this in Genesis 48? So this is, Ephraim stands for the northern kingdom. Uh, verse 4, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it in his hand, he swallows it. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, a very handsome man that's declining and doesn't know it and acts like he's still young? Fred? No, no. Uh, Samaria is way south of that. Uh, so, um, so the leadership of Ephraim thinks they're still as powerful as they always have been. And I must say that the northern kingdom always was stronger militarily and politically than the southern kingdom was, uh, remarkably enough. They had the trade routes going through their, their um, uh, territory. They also had the good agricultural land. Judah didn't get much of that. 
So uh, Judah was off the trade routes. They didn't have men. They didn't even have much water for Jerusalem. It was a it was a hard place to to be uh, to to um, maintain a kingdom. That they did was an indication of the blessing of God on Judah. But Ephraim always had it easier. But they don't even know. They're still acting like dandies. And they just look like stupid old men. Verse, verses uh, 5 and 6. The day is coming. Um, chapters 28 to 33 alternate between representing the false leadership of, of humans and the true leadership of God. It begins here briefly and continues with larger and larger segments. And those blue segments that you see um, that I showed earlier are indications of that. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown. You think you've seen a beautiful crown in Samaria? The Lord himself will become a beautiful crown. And a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people, to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice for him who sits in justice, in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And the, uh, but he returns now, verse 7, to judgment again. Let's see. Uh, yes. Verse 7 to 13. Filthy dr- They are filthy drunks. Everything you can imagine about a filthy drunk is is what's here. Watch the language of it. Filthy drunk leaders who despise the prophet's prattling word. I looked the word up, the word prattle up just to make sure. This is especially used of childish talk. And that's exactly that <laughs> except from my mouth I can communicate really well. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. And it's a famous passage. Unfortunately misused <laughs> in our day. So verse seven these who reel with wine and stagger from strong drink, the priest, the prophet, reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They, st- they stagger from strong drink. They wheel while, reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are, f- are full of filthy vomit. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, without a single clean place. They are filthy drunks. To whom would he teach knowledge? Now here Isaiah is probably quoting the false leaders. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? What does he think we are? Here's what his message sounds like to them. For he says, verse 10, Tav la tav, tav la tav. Kav la kav, kav la kav. I've I've quoted it in Hebrew so you hear it. Are you with me here? Uh, Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line. This is the source of, of, um, uh, what is that? Pardon? No, I can't think. It's a Bible study group. Um, Precept. Precept. Yeah. This is the the main text for them. And it's 
actually the drunks charging Isaiah with... <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like Dallas Seminary's motto, the, the seminary whose mission, above all other things, is to teach the Bible in context. And our motto is preach the word, by which we mean do expository preaching, preach contextually. But that probably is a reference to evangelism. <laughs> so it, we've taken our motto out of context too. <laughs> but the larger issue here is we're better than that. We should get a better message. Give us something that's worthy of our attention. This nonsense that you give us. Tev, la tev, tev, la tev, kev, la kev. You just sing song. We, we don't need that. We need something serious. We need something really fitting our stature. Well, they're getting it. They're filthy drunks. Exactly. So he goes on. Um, verse 11. Indeed, he will speak to... Now, my text has he capitalized. And that's probably right in the context here. The Lord will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Mm -hmm. I should add that this is the source of a quotation in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul explains that the purpose of tongues is is, is exactly the same here. It's a message of judgment upon Israel. (laughs) So, so, um, well, haven't you ever heard somebody speak another language that you didn't even have any framework for understanding. German can sound kind of like something, yes? But a Frenchman talking, I, I can't hear that fast. Sound doesn't go fast enough to my ear to, to discern what a Frenchman is saying. But then we won't even ask about Arabic. <laughs> When I hear Arabic, I hear sounds that I recognize because I know something about the Semitic alphabet. But, but once in a while, I can actually hear a word in Arabic. But most of the time, it's just blah. Are you with me? Yeah, stammering lips. That's what he's talking about. So it's not God stammering. No. Yeah. Who are the people of stammering lips? They're the Assyrians. They're coming in, and they're going to be speaking Assyrian and and you wanted stammering, you're going to get stammering. Um, so he will speak to them. Uh, where do we go there? Um, Eleven. He will he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, "Here is rest. Give rest to the weary, and here is repose." But they would not listen. So the word of the Lord of hosts to them will be. Tsev la tsev, tsev la tsev, kev la kev, kev la kev. Ersham, Ersham. A little here, a little there. Then they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Um, So the same prattling will continue, verses 11 to 13. You think I'm prattling, Isaiah says to the people? You ain't heard it yet. Verses 14 to 22, Judah's irrational leaders ought to learn from Samaria. So, verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, 
This is the lowest of the low in Proverbs. There are six levels of wisdom from wise to simple and three types of folly, and the lowest is the scoffer. And the scoffer, you would do better to just burn a, build, burn a house down than let a scoffer come into it. He will be more destructive than a fire would be. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule the people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made... They would never say this. This is Isaiah's taunting. This is Isaiah's parody. on there. We have made falsehood our refuge. And we have concealed ourselves with deception. There may be some exact truth in this though. Think about it. In politics... How do you know when a politician is lying? His lips are moving. So when you, when you are when when you are making a covenant, making a contract with a foreign nation, you're deceiving your you're just you're you're dissembling your purposes. Are you with me here? You're somehow covering up some of what you're trying to communicate. They have used deception and they're trusting a deceptive a, a, a deceived treaty. Uh, verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion. Now here comes, of all things, hope. Uh, their their pan is, <laughs> plan is trusting in, in deceit. Um, but God has a different plan, verses 16 to 21. Therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone. For the foundation, firmly placed, he who believes will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Why don't they want this? Because they don't want justice. They want their kind of justice. They want their definition of it. Boy, it does. Yeah. Then hail will sweep away the, the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant death will be, with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become a trampling place. All the, ver the very things you were trying to avoid are your destiny. Um, as often as it passes through, it will seize you. Now, notice that as often as it passes through. What is, what's the point of that? Uh, folks, we're probably not talking about solely the destruction of Samaria in 722 and the siege of Jerusalem subsequently. Are you with me here? We're probably not talking simply about those. We're probably talking about the whole plan of God in establishing this cornerstone, the whole plan of God includes Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, a name that you may not know, but he is he is the guy who's perhaps behind Daniel eleven, uh, but who's who's um, who is really only a type of the enemy of God who's coming. 
It includes Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. It includes Adolf Hitler. Are you with me here? It includes everyone who plans to destroy Jerusalem as often as it passes through. It will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night, and it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. One of the saddest verses in the Old Testament to me is the end of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. The Lord will scatter Israel among the nations, and when you are there, you will try to sell yourselves as slaves, but nobody will buy you. And every morning you will say, oh, that it were night. And every night you will say, oh, that it were morning. That is just that is just profoundly sad. Sometime it would be useful to get um, Abba Iban's book, Heritage Civilization and the Jews, and read about the medieval, the post, post-biblical period of Israel's history. And they have gone from nation to nation. 1492 is a very important year in Israel's life. Because <laughs> Ferdinand and Isabella not only sent Columbus, but they also banished all Jews from, from their realms. Some actually came to the West <laughs> um, and settled, some of them in Arizona of all places, and continued. They were Catholics, but they continued their practice of Passover and Sabbath and not knowing why, but they were they kept it up. But many of them went to Eastern Europe and settled as a buffer between the Eastern uh, powers and the and the and the Western powers. Yeah. So their life has been. If you if you've not seen Fiddler on the Roof, that would be a good place, a good one to see as well to see what he's talking about here. Verse twenty. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perazim, we're talking about when God conquered the Philistines for for Israel. He will be stirred in the valley of Gibeon, where again, a war, uh, um, God brought victory in war to do his task, his unusual task to work his work, his extraordinary work. What is? What are we talking about here? Um, the Lord fought for Israel against the Philistines at Mount Perazim and against the Amorites in the Valley of Gibeon. But now he rises to do something, um, fighting against his own people. Most of the time when you read about history and the prophets... They're referring to historical events to give you the sense what God was then, he will be now. You can hope for the future because you know the story. What God has done in the past is, in fact, a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. But he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So if you know the history, you know how to trust God now. You know what he has done. You know what he will do. But now, as he judged the Philistines as he judged the Amorites. Now he will judge Judah. Um, 
So the message, verse 22, ends with a challenge. And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction of all the earth. Well, the, you've seen, surely, a movie of Dickens' Christmas Carol. And you've seen Marley? Yeah? What does he say about Scrooge's chain? Okay. It's a, it's a ponderous chain you wear, but Marley says yours is eight years long, seven years longer than mine. And it's a, it is a, a massive chain. It's the, it's the sign of the judgment that's coming on, and it's going to be worse and worse and worse because you continue in your scoffing. Um, so verse 23 then, um, introduces agricultural imagery, and the question is, what in the world does it mean? There are at least three views that I found on this. The, the right one is number three, and I hate to take that one because I don't like the people that hold it, but I think they're right. <laughs> so so what what are we getting here? Verse 23 through verse 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? What's the answer? No. Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? No. There's a time for plowing. There's a time for harrowing. But it's just a time for, for sowing. You don't just keep plowing forever. What's the point? Well... There is a temporary, necessary, purposeful nature of this strange, unusual work of God. Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat and rose, barley in its place and rye within its area? For his God instructs him and teaches him properly. The, 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 the farmer knows what he's doing. How does he know that? Because God has instructed him. Then God is not less wise than the farmer he's instructed. So, um, verse 27, For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel dri- driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod. You don't use the wrong tool for the job. You always use the right tool for the job. There's a good footnote here. Okay, for time, let me move on. I'm sorry. Verse 28. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. Now, here's the point of the whole. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. You people of Judah better learn the message of Samaria. They didn't. They got reprieves, marvelous reprieves in the latter years of Hezekiah, in the years of Josiah. They got marvelous reprieves. Thank God for that. But Hezekiah had Manasseh and Ammon between him and Josiah. And Manasseh, 52 years on the throne, and he, he put chariots for the, for the sun god on the temple roof. 
kind of reasoning is this. Thank you. I'm thankful for the book of Chronicles because it tells us more about Manasseh than we know from Kings. At the end of his life, he was taken in captivity to Babylon and was brought back because he repented. Thank you, Lord, for that. I'm thankful for a Manasseh <laughs> from whom we, we learn the great long-suffering of God and his value on people who turn back to him. This, are you with me here? But with the exception of Hezekiah and Josiah, the rest of the kings of this last period of Israel, of Judah's life, never learned the message. They saw that Samaria was, was destroyed. They concluded that they were the righteous ones. We, Judah, we're the righteous ones. Those were the wicked people. But you're doing the same things. You're still worshiping the calves of Samaria. So why do you think you're better? Well, we have the temple. Yeah. I don't put a whole lot of stock in that. In Isaiah's day, God's, uh, God promised that the temple would not be destroyed. But when you get to Jeremiah's day, more or less a century later. God says, no, the temple is going to be destroyed. And they tried to kill Jeremiah for saying that. High treason. But they went back and, and one, of the, one of the servants of the king went back and said, but, but in Hezekiah's day, Micaiah, ben, Micaiah preached, or Micah preached that the temple would, 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 be, would be destroyed. And they didn't execute him for that. So they didn't execute Jeremiah. Are you with me here? Don't put a lot of stock in that building. When it pleases God to keep it, he will keep it. But when you have defiled it enough, he will destroy it. He's, he's not tied to buildings. He's not tied to organizations. So, chapter 28 of Isaiah. For all, for all of its fearful message for those of us who have like the people in the passage on hope earlier uh, everyone who believes in the cornerstone will not be disturbed this is us then when the judgment comes and it's a whirlwind huh, Jay's left so I, I will say that uh, when the judgment comes and it's a, an overwhelming storm, it's a flood that you cannot resist, you can stand firm because you have a faith in the cornerstone. Amen. You have nothing to fear. Just the pain of the day, yes? But you will stand firm. So let's pray. Father, teach us from this that as we see judgment already falling on our own nation, we can stand firm, hold fast, when everyone that's significant around us, all the leaders, all the, all the governmental leaders, the academic leaders, all of the opinion makers of our, of our day are telling us that it is foolish and wrong and wicked to be a Christian, we must stand firm. Because faith in one true and only God never has made sense to fallen man. But you have taught us who you are through the person of Jesus. And in that we must hold and not, not flinch. Watch the winds go by. 
watch the flood pass, even be washed along, carried along in it, as Daniel was carried along to Babylonian captivity, but still holding fast to you, knowing that in you alone is a steadfast hope in which we can place our confidence. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.